The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. It's time for Caffeinated Comics, a lively discussion and debate on comics, film, television, and collectibles, all fueled by the magic of Frappuccinos. And now, here's your hosts... John and Steven. Thank you, it's Kevin in Comics. I'm your host, John Clark. It's October, and that means it's all a countdown to Halloween. Whether we can even go outside or not, it's still coming. So that means horror movies. Uh, we're building up to Halloween with lots and lots of horror movies, and today we are talking to Thomas Arndt, who has written a horror movie. It's called Scarecrows vs. Zombies. It comes out October 28th on Amazon Prime, so you can watch it when you're not going outside. This is the first time I've talked to Thomas, and he's got a really interesting story. He's been writing for years and years and years before breaking through with a romantic comedy after years of writing horror scripts. We talk about that, and we talk about how he was able to transition to horror, and we also talk a lot about Jaws. So let's talk to him. Are you working from home now, or do you go out into the world? Uh, well, I'm working. I work for Universal Music Group. Um, yeah. That's my, you know, my, my, my day job. And I've been working from home since March. Uh, yeah, so uh, I work in Manhattan, and that's where the offices are located. So okay, It'll be interesting. You know, when I we're not supposedly going to be back for for a bit. <clears throat> yeah, where do you do you live in Manhattan or are you? Uh, no, I actually live in New Jersey. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that saves the commute. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah. So I, the, the commute I don't miss. My my comrades at work I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm originally from Queens. I lived in uh, working in Manhattan. Just waiting for that train in Astoria. Mm-hmm. Um, we just found out, because I've been in Chicago now, I mean, I'm in the suburb, so it takes me about 40 minutes to get in. We've been out since March, and we just found out we're not going back till at least January. Yeah, January 22nd is the, is the date they're telling us, and that's the earliest. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, yeah they, they, they immediately said, uh, and we might not. <laughs> so right. um, I'm kind of looking forward to missing as much of a Chicago winter as possible. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, well, I feel like, you know, if, if we got to come back in January, can they extend it, you know, maybe it'll March when the weather gets a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Let's just make- the worst time of the year to commute. Let's just, start make, the <laughs> let's just make it one full year. Yeah. <laughs> just, um, so are now, how are you handling the, the workload? I know some people are, some people struggle with trying to get work done at home with other stuff. Uh, well, yeah, for me, I mean, you know, my kids are all, you know, all, you know, my, my son lives with me, but he's 28 and, uh, you know, my, okay. I, I, you know, I don't have any, you know, young kids to, you know, to, to, you know, to, try to figure all that out, you know, two different things going on at once. So for me, you know, the workload, the, the, the stay at home thing actually, you know, is, is, has been, you know, kind of, you know, a pleasure in some ways, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, so I feel like I have a little bit more control. It's like, you know, it's not like I have to worry about getting, you know, figuring out what type of bus I want to get. If I want to, you know, now it's like, you know, if I want to take a break, I'll go back on for a few hours. It, it's an, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice, you know, uh, feeling to, to be able to do it. Yeah, I like I said, like- I, yeah, yeah, the the one on one contact, the walking in somebody's office and asking them a question, you know, all the, all, all those types of things. The, the the human element obviously is is missing, but um, in many ways, I think it's a little bit more efficient. To, to work yeah, on. I think we've had this technology for about ten years, and companies have been reticent to let employees do it because mm-hmm. they, um, first of all, they want to justify the addresses on their offices, and exactly. and then they're like, well, I don't know if I can't see you, I don't know if you're getting it done, but we've had six months yeah. of getting it done. Exactly, and, and and I think you know, I think I think the workplace as we know it will 
will be changed. The format will be changed forever. Now, I, I don't. I don't know if the traditional way of working will ever be the way it was. You know, before March 2020. So, it'll be interesting to see. And you know, and in some ways, you know, in some ways, I think the productivity has gone up for some. You know, in, in many ways. Yeah, I think it has. Um, we'll just eliminating the commute. You're getting a couple of hours back. Yeah. I find the downside. I don't know about you, Universal Music. I find the downside is that. Uh, office hours are just whenever somebody thought to send you an email. Yeah, well, that's just it. You know, you kind of, I feel like my availability, I'll get emails, you know, there are some people whose work schedule, they have young kids. So they're logging back on seven, eight at night and sending emails till 10 o'clock, you know, and you kind of, you know, kind of feel like you got to, you know, you got to sort of be, you know, accommodate everybody's schedule that you're dealing with, you know, um, to a degree, but it all gets done Yeah, one way or the other. So does being home uh, give you more time for writing? Um, not so much, actually. I got to be honest with you. Um, uh, like I said, I, I feel that since I'm home, I, 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 I need to, you know, sort of, you know, concentrate on making sure that I'm getting everything I need to do done, um, you know, from my, you know, my day job. But, um, but you know, I never, uh, you know, I mostly wrote on the weekends anyway. So that part really hasn't changed. You know, mm-hmm. it was always like, you know, the thing I did. Um, you know, when I was commuting, I was not getting home till late at night anyway. And the last thing I wanted to do was sit in front of a, a computer, you know, when yeah. I got home. So, so that, yeah. so that part of it hasn't really changed so much. Now, uh, so are you still devoting weekends to writing or are you basically um, just with the Yeah, now? I mean, uh, I mean, at, at this point, uh, I ha- I've had an idea um, for another script that I've been uh, mulling about for the past few years. And I, I just started really uh, diving into it, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, you know, trying, I'm giving myself a uh, sort of meaningless deadline you know, to just try to try to get it done by the holidays, you know, yeah. just to give me a, just to give me an ambition, a goal. Yeah. Just to keep it from mm-hmm. always being unfinished. Exactly. There's always those seven files that are like, oh, yeah, I, started it. I, had, I had such a enthusiasm for this thing. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what it is. Uh, so, but you've had two, you now have had two movies produced. That's correct. Yes. yes. Yeah. So um, how, I mean, I don't want to say how long was in development, but when did you first get into screenwriting and how far away was that from now? <laughs> well, I always say, uh, you know, uh, so much for an overnight uh, success story here. Mm-hmm. Um my very, the, the very first script that I wrote, I wrote, I started writing when I, uh, yeah, I'm 57. So I started writing my first script when I was in my mid twenties. Um, and uh, the, the, the genre that I've always gravitated towards and have been a fan of is, you know, sci-fi, horror, uh, fantasy. And it was a fantasy script uh, about the fountain of youth. Um, and I wrote it. And when I was four or five months before my first child, my son was born, I actually got an option on it. And I was like, oh, this is, this is the way it works. You write a script and you get an option. And you get, oh, I was like, oh, you know, it's so yeah. great. Like, so easy, right? And, uh, you know, my son was 26 when my first film got produced. <laughs> so there, there you go. You know what I mean? So that, yeah, like most- I said, so much for the overnight successes. Um, but, but anyway, to, to your point, I, you know, I started writing, um, you know, I actually started thinking about, you know, I was, you know, a big movie fan my whole life and always wanted, to uh, you know, try to get you know uh, into the into into movies, and you know, I'm a, I was a writer, and uh, I actually you know one day started. Well, you know, if you want to do this, you actually better start writing some stuff down. And I'd written some screenplays in college. You know, I had you know taken some screenwriting classes, 
Uh, but my first foray, actually real foray, was you know when I was in my mid to late twenties and uh, uh, wrote a this sort of epic fantasy uh, adventure script called The Forever Man about the, the Fountain of Youth that uh, still remains uh, to be produced. But uh, that was that was my that was my first uh, that was my first uh, you know official script that I, I would say I wrote. Yeah. So you had um, as you said, you've mostly been attracted to sci-fi and fantasy but your first film is a straight-up romantic drama right with elements of comedy mm-hmm. um which is now on amazon prime i got to take a look right. at it a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago um so how does how does that happen do you do you say well i'm going to try to write this or um because because i've been writing sci-fi fantasy for a while right well what happened i'd, I'd written about three scripts i'd say at that point um this going back maybe you know 17 years ago uh when i wrote the first draft of underneath the same moon which uh, as you say is now available on amazon prime um the 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 actual script the title of the script when i wrote it was called doubting thomas um and what had happened was I'd, wrote, I'd written about three scripts at that point, uh, I think two horror and a fantasy, which is the one I had just mentioned. And I was working with a guy who who wrote, we found out, you know, just by conversation, he was he wrote scripts and we would read each other's, you know, screenplays. And he wrote comedy and, uh, uh, or, you know, scripts that had, had much more comedy than in the, the scripts that I was certainly writing at the time. And uh, he had, I remember he had mentioned to me, he said, you know, why don't you give, why don't you try to write a comedy? He said, you know, even though you're writing these horror scripts and fantasy scripts, there's, there's always a comedic element to them. There's some witty dialogue and, you know, just in person, you're kind of a funny guy. You know, do you ever think about writing a comedy? And I had not thought about it at all. I mean, it was not something I had even considered doing or had an interest in, to be honest with you. But I said, you know what, as a, as, you know, as a sort of get out of my wheelhouse and try something different, I wasn't having a lot of success, you know, at that point, getting anything done. So I said, you know, let me, let me, let me see if I can, uh, you know, actually do this, you know, as an exercise in uh, impossible futility. And, uh, and it was very difficult. I mean, I, I always say, I always hearken back to the sort of a famous Hollywood story. I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard it enough. Um, where there's a famous actor, Edmund Gwynn, who everybody probably knows has played Santa Claus and won an Oscar for the original Miracle on 34th Street back in the 40s. And supposedly on his deathbed, a friend went to see him while he was dying in the hospital and said, you know, it must be hard, you know. And he's like, no, dying is easy. Uh, comedy is hard. <laughs> and and I, I get that sentiment, uh, you know, completely. So, um, you know, it was really difficult for me I, to, to just, first of all, try to come up with an idea, um, you know, and, and, and actually write comedic scenes was totally, uh, you know, it was the most difficult writing that I, that I had, that I have done so far up until this point. Um, you know, it didn't come naturally to me. It, it was really something I had to work very, very, very hard to, to, to do. Uh, I didn't know how good or successful I was at doing it but I you know just the actual process I had stopped so many times I'm like oh this you know this is awful it's not working but I just kept at it until I finished I, I always have a thing that if I'm going to start a script I'm going to finish it <laughs> so so that <laughs> was my sort of draft. philosophy yeah at least the first draft um but you know the, the, the hard part as in anything you know was just trying to come up with an idea and, and I just got kind of struck with this notion that how interesting you know when you're in anybody's in a long-term relationship, be it marriage or dating or whatever, 
a romantic relationship, you get to a point in a relationship where you kind of know everything about the other person. You know, you know what kind of music they like, you know, how they take their coffee, you know, you just sort of, you know, you really, you know, you really know the other person as well as you could possibly know somebody. And I thought, you know, I just kind of got struck with this notion, like what would the dynamic be like if you, uh, you know, you, you took a road trip with this significant other and for whatever reason, which I had to figure out at some point, now this person didn't know you at all. They, you, they, you were a complete stranger to them. So you knew everything about them and now they knew nothing about you. And I just sort of, that appealed to me for whatever reason, this, this, this notion. And I, and it kind of, you know, sprung from that where it was like, well, how would that work out? And then if you add the other element of like, well, now, now can you make this person fall in love? This person loved you once, but now you're a stranger. Can you pull out your sort of book of tricks that you feel that, you know, made this person love you and get this person to love you, you know, during this like two day car ride together, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and would, would that work? And then of course the whole transient nature of love is that you can't make anybody fall in love with you. It just happens. You know what I mean? So that, that was sort of the, the, the theme of the, of the, of the, of the script uh, as I wrote it. So, um, so that's basically what happened. So I just kind of, you know, wrote this script called Downing Thomas and, uh, and uh, during the course of the 16 years that I had written it, uh, I'd gotten a couple of options on it. It looked like it was going to be a go a few times. And as screenwriters in the industry know, you know, you get your heart broken many, many times. And, um, and eventually about, uh, I guess, three years now or so, um, I had hooked up with um, a production company called VF VFX Lab, who was the owner, Bob Wasson, and his wife, Wendy. And they had been uh, around for about 20 years as a visual effects company for film, television, theme parks. And they were looking to branch out to actually making, producing films. Um, and they were looking for to make their first film. And... Uh, they had optioned it and, uh, you know, we got to the point that I was one of three and then one of two. And eventually uh, they chose mine to be the uh, the first one film that they were going to actually produce. And uh, yeah, it's funny that they went with that genre because um, as you're telling your story, it made me realize you're like the opposite Sam Raimi, where um, <laughs> Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell, Rob Tappert had been writing all of these comedies and a producer told them, we'll make a horror film because if you have a comedy that doesn't work, you have nothing, but if you have a horror movie that doesn't work, right. yeah, you still got blood. Yeah. Um, and then the producer famously told them, have blood drip down the screen, and there's a scene in the end, <laughs> and Bruce Campbell's in the basement where a projector turns on and blood runs down the screen. Mm -hmm. So I find it so interesting that uh, you've been writing all these horror movies and sci-fi movies, but the one that gets made Right. And everybody that knows me, when I told them a film was going to get produced, they all started rattling off the titles of different horror <laughs> yeah. movies. I've been, I was at this one. I'm like, no, it's actually there. Like, and the interesting part that it was happening on the other side, when I got to know Bob and, uh, and his wife, he's a huge horror fan. He's worked, you know, visual effects on, on, on different films. Right. And everybody assumed, everybody assumed he would be making his first venture would be a horror film. And then these two people that, you know, that uh, seemed to, you know, be geared towards this were what, you know, their first effort wound up being a romantic comedy. So I think it was his end, my end. It was sort of like a, a surprise that yeah, that was the uh, film. And in a way, it's a big swing because I can't think of any other genre that's more reliant on actors than a romantic comedy. And this is, this is uh, an indie with, right. with mostly unknowns. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. uh, 
It is. It's a genre that's tough, as you say, because, you know, horror fans will watch a horror movie based on the premise. They're not necessarily looking, you know, it's whatever. But romantic comedy is the one genre that, you know, without having a name or somebody involved that, you know, that that you want to see, um, it is tough. It's a tough, you know, it's a tough uh, sell. Uh, on the indie market. Um, you know, the fact that it's, you know, sort of connecting uh, the way that it did, it did very well in the, in the film festival. So we, you know, we won a lot of awards. Uh, every time we were in one, we won at least one award um, and won Best Romantic Comedy several times. All the actors had won awards, the main actors, different times. So, uh, you know, it was nice to see that it was at least getting, you know, well-received and, uh, you know, found a distributor. Um, so, uh, yeah. Now, was this always was this always the plan to put it on Amazon Prime, or is this kind of a, a pandemic? Were you looking at a theatrical release before the pandemic happened? Uh, well, for for underneath the same moon, it actually uh, the the, um, the uh, distributor that uh, picked it up is called um, Indie Rights, and they specialize in you know in low budget indie films. Um, they handle you know like literally like a whole entire catalog. Uh, you know, they have a, a website. You can see they have a huge huge number of films that they represent and they have sort of this whole this 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 entire like release strategy plan to maximize the uh the amount of exposure an independent film can can get um and it actually did get a very small theatrical release right before the pandemic for valentine's day in la uh i think it played in uh, in a theater for about two weeks there um and then for Valentine's Day, for actual February 14th, being a romantic comedy, they they uh, they wanted to have it available on Amazon Prime. Um, and since then, it's been available on some other streaming uh, services. It's on Google Play, it's on YouTube, Tubi. Um, so uh, it, it, they brought it to the Virtual Con Film Festival. So um, internationally, it'll start to get some rollout and exposure too. <clears throat> yeah, in a way, this is one of the best times for indie film because everyone's just home streaming. Exactly. So, and people are starting to dig. I mean, now that we're six months in, um, it's not just what's on the Netflix homepage. Uh, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and find these things that you might not have had time to find before. And Amazon, uh, Amazon in particular seems to be the one that's has the most indie films, has a lot of uh, classic B films, um, the, the kind the kind of genre that'll pop up. Now, how involved were you in production? Was this was this uh, a matter of like, thanks, we'll we'll invite you to the premiere, or were you on the set? Were you uh, no? Actually, well, it was filmed on the West. Uh, the original uh, script in the, in the original, you know. I, been through several drafts, but the the original ver, uh, version of the script had the couple driving. There's a for those of you who haven't seen it yet, uh, the whole second half of the film is 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 as I alluded to earlier. It's a road trip between a husband and a wife, where the husband has lost his memory of his wife, and he's on his way to meet an ex flame, and the girlfriend is uh, the wife is trying everything in her power to to get him to sort of jog his memory, to remember her and to, and to fall in love with her on the way. But the original script had them driving from New Jersey down to Florida, down to Miami. Um, they say, write what you know. That's, that's what I know. Um, New Jersey New and Jersey Miami. boy, exactly. So well, New Jersey and Florida at least. But, um, but anyways, uh, when Bob got involved, he, it was going to be shot on the West Coast. So he, I had to switch it up. It also took place during the holiday season. It's kind of a, a, a theme in the background, the original script. Um, when it 
when uh, Bob, you know, came on board, he he is a West Coast uh, guy. His facilities are on the West Coast, so he wanted to shoot it on the West Coast. So it wound up having to be switched from the road trip from San Diego to San Francisco. Um, shouldn't take too much doing on my part to to, to get that done. But um, but to your point, no, I, I uh, it was shot uh, over I think over like a three week period. So I I didn't have the uh, opportunity to go out and and be and see any of it. To be honest with you, being being made. Um, so, you know, I, I would be getting little pieces of it here and there. Yeah. Uh, what was your reaction then seeing if you're, if you're not hands-on in the production, what's your reaction when you first saw dialogue being said that you had been writing, as you said, right. Well, for, you know, like I said, uh, you know, uh, I've been, it had been almost, you know, it'd been like 25 years since, you know, I, I had written my first screenplay. So that, that first sort of, you know, I, you know, I got on a link, I was literally watching it on my phone and, you know, just that sort of, surreal moment that you know you kind of just dream you know you're you, you know it's a dream to there it is like you're watching actors say and do things that you wrote on paper it's just sort of like you know that first experience you're sort of not being you know it's hard to be objective about anything you're just sort of amazed <laughs> you know yeah. that you're watching a movie that you actually wrote people are saying your dialogue and doing things that you wrote on paper so um you know but uh you know i've seen the, the film many many times i mean the, the thing that i'm very happy about is you know it was done on a very, it was done on a low budget you know obviously with with actors unknown actors and, and you know i think i think the quality that that bob was able to get with the uh with the um you know with 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 the the elements that he had uh with his experience um you know, the fact that he was technically a first time director on a feature film, uh, you know, the, the, the pluses totally outweighed, you know, I didn't, I had no idea what this was going to look like. They had not made a movie. I didn't know if it was going to look like it was going to be shot on somebody's phone or, you know, I mean, I didn't know right. what I, it was not like he could show me something that they had done before where I had some, something to reference. So my overall first reaction was that it, you know, it looked like a movie. It was professional. I was, you know, the editing, the cinematography, the, I thought the actor, you know, so all of that was just a relief that, you know, yeah. it, was, it was actually, you know, whatever. Um, uh, you know, some of the some of the comedy was a bit broader than what was on the written page. Uh, you know, I think Bob's uh, sense of humor uh, is is a little broader than than mine at certain points. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, there's some fart jokes and some things like that 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 you know that that kind of ramped up the uh, the, the the guys appreciating it, the movie quality of it. That wasn't you know in the original script, but um, but you know, those are sort of in my opinion, minor, minor issues. I mean, uh, the most important, important thing for me was that, uh, the, in my opinion, the ending had to work, you know, that it all, it all builds up to this very sort of emotional ending, um, where these, you know, two people that you hopefully at that point like and are rooting for, you know, will, will eventually, you know, uh, come together. And, uh, and I, and I really thought the last 20 minutes of the movie shined. I mean, it was, it was what, it was really what I was, you know, I was like terrified to get to that moment and say like, oh my God, you know, everything could have worked. And then the last 20 minutes didn't happen in the way that I was envisioning. You know, you, when you write a movie, you shoot it in your head. You know what I mean? I always say like every writer has a version of a movie in their head. And I'd say those last 20 minutes were, 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 were everything I was hoping it would be. <clears throat> yeah. I think that's one of the reasons I was thinking of it as a drama more than a, a comedy is usually uh, comedy will go through a big set piece in the third act. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Anchorman just goes to the zoo and <laughs> fights mm-hmm. bears. Um, it usually gets broader and broader and broader and goes out. And that's honestly one of the things that usually brings comedy down 
is that a lot of these things go from like little observational relatable moments, but then there's this big ending. And uh, as I said, I, I, as I watched it, I was thinking of it more as a drama because the jokes kind of drop away in those 20 minutes. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's dramatic. It's really about the characters trying to resolve issues and, and get past their own limitations. Um, and it's not going for big jokes. Was that always a part of the script? Were you always imagining um, we'll have, we'll have a comedy throughout, but the end has got to have a lot of weight. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I looked at it, I looked at it as a, a dramedy that had like comedic moments in it. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I wrote this, the, the, the sisters, Holly is the sort of comedic relief in it, you know, and that, and that character, that character is either, you're either going to gravitate towards that sense of humor or, or, or you're not, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, she, she really was the, uh, she was the comedic, you know, beats in the film, you know, that little, that little sort of sub story where she would constantly be running into people throughout the screenplay where she would, you know, she has this very big, loud personality and she would get into altercations with people and then it would always come back to bite her. It would turn out that she would run into them, you know, in, you know, in a way that, you know, she had wished she hadn't. So she was kind of the comedic beat, but by the time, you know, by the time the third act happens, her story has kind of resolved itself. You know what I mean? Where, you know, so, so yes, I think to your point, it, it was always meant, it was always meant to have more uh, emotional, uh, you know, impact at the end than comedic impact at the end. Um, and, 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 and I, and, you know, and I think it does, you know what I mean? I, I, I think you walk away with it, you know, with, with hopefully a warm feeling, you know? Yeah. And you, de- you definitely do. And I think it works. And especially, I was especially impressed, as you said, with the, the level of production on, mm-hmm. on that type of budget you expect, you expect to see just found locations and, mm-hmm one light with very harsh shadows <laughs> and it is it's very polished and it's um in a way it reminded me of the first time i saw a minor league baseball game um we, we saw the brooklyn cyclones in coney island years ago and i had aunts and uncles that were like oh you gotta go you gotta go and i'm not a huge sports fan which is why i'm i'm on my eighth year of this sci-fi podcast <laughs> um and i was like ah, I, I guess i guess i'll go and then uh, watching the game, I realized the players were putting in 110% every single person on the field because it was a minor league, because they, they had something they wanted to prove. They had something they wanted to show. And that's um, – they weren't comfortable in, uh, in the play. And I felt that way about the movie. I'm like, everybody is putting in 110% all the time to make this thing as good as it possibly could be and that's a joy to watch sometimes especially when you get you can get desensitized to just to hollywood product as we were saying like romantic comedies it's usually there's usually like three or four actresses that own all the romantic comedies and after they do about 10 or 20 it kind of becomes a job uh this doesn't have the feeling at all this has that feeling of like of everybody's taking as big a swing as they can and it, it definitely shines through um, and again, it's on Amazon Prime if you want to see it. But let's switch to horror 
Yes. Uh, it's, it's getting close to Halloween. You have jack o Yeah. My and, favorite time of the year. <laughs> in fact, it's September 26th <laughs> when we are recording this. And on your Zoom, there is a jack-o'-lantern behind you. Yeah. Well, is it there, there is, all year? It is not. Uh, but, I, I, you know, since I'm home and I, I, I just feel like let's put it out early. So cause I got to, I'll get to see it and appreciate it more working from home than I would if I just was, you know, commuting. So, so as you said, you've always been a big horror fan. What were the movies that influenced you? And who are the directors that you loved? Right. Well, I mean, I, uh, you know, back in the late 60s, there was a uh, TV show on in the New York area called Creature Features and, you know, had a host, uh, you know, back Zachary? in the days. Zachary, uh, no, it wasn't Zachary. It was called The Creep. And uh, it was just, it was strictly new, based out of New York. Uh, and they used to show all the old, you know, uh, universal horror films. So mm-hmm. that was my introduction. And I... I always say, I think my screenwriting career started, you know, it used to be on from eight to 10 and I lived with my grandparents and my grandmother was very, very strict about our bedtimes. And me and my older brother had to go to bed at nine 30. And we used to go through the same scenario every Saturday night where there was a half hour left on all these <laughs> classic horror movies that I'm watching. And I would argue and my grandfather would try to take our cause, but nope, she was. T- and so for about the first year, you know, till we got a little bit older, I had I had watched the first, you know, hour and a half of all Frankenstein and Dracula and Bride of Frankenstein, and then I never saw the ending. You know what I mean? I had to go to bed, so I used to lay in bed and make up an ending, you know, before I'd go to sleep. And then so about the a year later, I finally got to see them. Head. Yeah, so I got to see if they actually were as good as the ones I was coming up with. So that's really how it started. I was a big, you know, famous monsters, you know, collecting those. Um, Actually, the very first uh, job out of college, I was working for Starlog Press and editing stories for Starlog and Fangoria, writing video reviews for Dr. Cyclops and Fangoria. I started my own fanzine in the late 80s that was around for a few years called Fanazone. So it's always been the genre. It's always been my my thing. And um, I think the first the first move the the, the the first movie that made me want and I think a lot of people can say this that are around my age. First movie that made me want to make movies or be in movies was Jaws. When I, that that was a transformative film for me. I that was the first time I was like, well, who's a, what is who's a director? What does he do? And like that movie, when I saw the impact that that film had on the audience, um, I, I, I I just I was like, you know, I was in love. I was like, you know, I was like, that movie's this, never. This is it. This is that it. movie's never diminished. I don't know how. Right. I just watched it again a few weeks ago, and I was, um, as I said, I'm from New York, and I was born in Rockaway Beach. I was born right off the ocean, and I remember that summer and about probably like five years later, nobody would go in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, and I watched it again a couple weeks ago, and now I'm in the Midwest in an apartment in the middle of the day, <laughs> and I'm terrified of the, of the ocean. Um, there's, I just found a, there's a long documentary on Spielberg about of his whole career. And obviously, you know, there's the famous stories about the shark doesn't work. So he had to cut around it, but just the way it's paced and the way it's edited, it just, it beats you over the head every single time. And there's, there's things in it that aren't usual. There's like when the boy dies, it's a long, it's a wide shot. Like he's way in the background and that makes it so much more terrifying. Yeah, it's a part, you know, I always say that there's only, in my opinion, that, you know, there's a lot of good movies, but there's only a handful of perfect films that to me, mm-hmm. that is a perfect, that, like, that is a perfect film. It is just, there's something, there's something raw, there's something um, dynamic about that movie that just, you know, that, that, that just is, 
hard to it's hard to explain you know what i mean it really is and you know and the interesting thing when you watch it now the fact that you know you know we have so many uh, you know you know yeah action adventure you know it's sort of you know you know it's commonplace you know to have all these gigantic films but the the, the way that movie is paced i don't know if that movie would come out that way now if they would of a studio would it's very it's very measured in in the in the you know its characterizations and it's you know it's just a really good aside from being a shocking and aside from being you know horrific it's just a you know the, the characters the the writing the fact that they took time to get to know each one of these three main characters like you know and, and develop the relationships between them because the movie wouldn't have worked you know what i mean after a while you know just shark shark eating people you know after a while it's like okay um but it yeah, just it's works very, on a very primal level. It just, it's, fil- it's really, you know, it's, it is just pure filmmaking, like Psycho. And- it's very 70s too. There's a, it, not, not just in terms of like the hair or the clothes, but uh, the scenes in Brody's house, everyone's talking over each other. It's like that Robert Altman kind of technique. Mm-hmm. And that's something where it just feels like the camera's just in a corner of the room, almost like a documentary. And that's something that, uh, even Spielberg loses it. You see a little of it in ET. Um, there's none of it in Raiders Lost Ark. <laughs> Raiders Lost Ark yeah. is that's yeah. that's my perfect film. But Raiders Lost Ark is very consciously studio. But he does that in Close Encounters. He does that in Jaws. He does that uh, to some extent in ET. And then it kind of falls out of fashion. But uh, I think you're absolutely right. When you're watching that, those scenes really hit me because it's like, oh, we're living with these people. So when those people are in danger. There's so much more weight. I think that's something we lost with the fast cutting, you know, what they call the MTV style in the eighties, like when the nightmare on Elm streets and the Friday the 13th came out and the, the focus was more and more on the monster. I think we, that's one of the things we lost in the genre. Right. Well, I think it's interesting, you know, uh, if you ask most people, um, or even, you know, critics, what's their favorite scene from Jaws? Most people will say it's Robert Shaw's, you know, Indianapolis scene. And that says everything right there. Like, you know what I mean? Here's a movie about a sh- sharks eating people, but everybody's favorite scene is that. You know what I mean? Yeah, the guy because talking it, about sharks eating people. Yeah, exactly. With but no cuts. Same. just It's just <laughs> one long shot of yeah. him sitting at a table on a boat. Yeah. I mean, you know, and... There you go. I mean, look how look how effective that you know. You could literally cut that movie, that cut that scene out. It really doesn't. It's not in the in the novel. Um, you know, I mean, you could cut that scene out. It's not going to change the actual structure of the film in any way. Um, yet, it's such a great scene. It's such a great acted scene. It's such a great written scene, and it just adds. You know, you get you know why this guy has become you know obsessive. Why his character? Why this character you've been watching is the way he is through you know through that through that you know through that uh, that dialogue. It really is something. You know, yeah. It really it, it really amazes me. You know, all these years later, when every time I watch the movie, when I end up, I'm like, you know, like no, you know, Robert Shaw, uh, Roy Scheider, Richard Wright, none of them were nominated for an Oscar for this film. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it really, you know, the '70s. You know, you know, if you, when you look at the movies of the '70s, you know what the '70s remembered for, like the whole, especially the early '70s, The Godfather and the early Scorsese movies. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I, there was, it was a different type of acting that was getting recognized. Mm-hmm. But you know, but they were all really good in that movie. You know what I mean? Like, they were all, the, all three of those were, were Oscar 
worthy performances. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I always forget. Mm. Uh, I always forget how good Roy Scheider is. And it's, I feel like the seventies and the eighties, you always saw Roy Scheider, and he was like he was like an Elliot Gould type, where he was like the everyman, but you can make him the hero in a movie. Mm-hmm. And I just he, I feel like after the eighties, after like Blue Thunder, I just never saw Roy Scheider again. And you're just making me think now, like what what would it be like to see like old Roy Scheider in films? Like if he's the CEO of an evil company or if he's like a grandfather, you know, um, he, again, it's the seventies. It's that period where you could make Roy Scheider the, the hero. It's, he's not Brad Pitt. He's not Tom. Right. You'd make Tom Cruise in Jaws today. Right. And you know, to Spielberg's credit, not to, we, you know, I know we're spending a lot of time on Jaws, which I could spend we days can. on Jaws, but you know, the, the one thing, the one thing that I, that I, that Spielberg, uh, you know, that I, I really credit well, was, you know, because I've read a lot about the, seen all kinds of documentaries and read a lot about it, was that, you know, they want, you know, supposedly like, you know, you think Charlton Heston wanted, desperately wanted that role. And yeah. when you think about Charlton Heston at that period of time, you know, he was making, you know, he was Earthquake and so, Airport 75. And, you know, he was, you know, he was like sort of that guy. Um, it certainly would have made sense, you know, from a, from a business point of view to have him as the role. And Spielberg like fought tooth and nail against it. Like he said, you know, he's like, you're never you know, to have a char- to have an actor of that weight play Brody, um, there would never be any doubt in the audience's mind that he was going to kill that shark. You know, he was going to win, and he he needed he needed somebody that was had a vulnerability in that role that you know you didn't know. You know, you know you didn't know how this was going to you know play out. I mean, you know, you got that he was afraid of the water. You know, Charlton Heston doesn't seem like he's afraid of anything. You know what I mean. <laughs> I don't think that, you know, would have worked. And supposedly, you know, Heston was not happy. Like, you know, supposedly he offered him uh, the, uh, a role in 1941 and he turned him down. He never, he never, uh, he never, never kind of forgave him for not giving him that, that part. But to Spielberg's credit, I mean, that must've been a hard thing to turn down because that certainly would have added a lot of box office cachet. Not that the movie wound up needing it at the end of the day. No, but I, I agree. I think it would cross the line between action and horror. I always think the difference between action and horror is, they each have the same scene where uh, a victim is trapped by the monster, by the villain, and they're getting closer and closer and closer. And then in an action movie, the last moment, the hero shows up and saves them. In the horror movie, the hero doesn't show up. Hmm. And you're right. There's no doubt with Charlton Heston. I mean, Charlton Heston was the Omega Man. He was one guy in a planet full of zombies. <laughs> and spoilers, he dies in that. But you don't think he's gonna. No. Mm-hmm. So, so, Jaws, so Jaws is your turning point. Yeah, so Jaws was really, I think, the movie that, uh, that you know, that made me want to be in movies. And, and like I said, you know, I was like, uh, that's when I, you know, I think it was the first soundtrack I bought. It was, it was, it was really sort of the one that, you know, that put me on my, on, on my current path, for sure. Yeah. But, um, but in terms of Scarecrows versus Zombies, uh, if we want to, you know, go there we now. Do. Yes. Um, so again, you know, I, I always have a, b- a bunch of backstory, you know, because nothing ever happens fast or easy, at least for me in this industry. But, um, you know, going back again, maybe about 16 years ago, um, it all started with, uh, with actually the Jersey Devil. Um, I had written a, the very first horror screenplay I wrote was a screenplay about the Jersey Devil called Pine Demon. And uh, for those of you who don't live in New Jersey, uh, it's a folklore about, you know, they are this creature that lives in the Pine Barrens and is like this winged, demonic, satanic creature that, you know, supposedly has had sightings, you know, over, 
the last couple hundred years. And it has this whole backstory with the 13th child of this couple being cursed and all that. So I did a lot. I was always fascinated with that story. And so I wrote a script about it. Uh, I had a friend of mine that I knew that was actually out in LA at that time. It's going back about 16 years ago. And he was making low budget horror movies. He was directing them and writing them. And uh, we had connected during this period. He had just made a movie was in making a movie called Corpses with Jeff Fahey. And uh, I said to him, I go, look, I said, you know, do you think the production company that you're working with might be interested in taking a look at my Jersey Devil script? So he's like, well, you know, I can always ask, what are they going to say? No, no. Worst thing they can say, right? So I said, okay. So I forwarded it to them. And, uh, and to my surprise, they actually came back to me and said uh, that they actually read it. And they said that they liked the writing, but they thought it was too regional a script. Um, yeah, that the, I feel like a I, lot of, I feel like the Jersey Devils is tried to be made uh, several times. Mm-hmm. There's like an X-Files episode that's kind of about it. Right. Like, like the they Blair always made things, right. They always made things that kind of tough, but it never, it, yeah. it was never like an actual, like my script is an actual you know, let like a t- it, the it, Jersey it, Devil. It, yeah. it, it's the pumpkin head of Jersey Devil scripts. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, they they actually came back. They and they said, uh, they said that you know they thought it was too regional of a of an idea. Um, I guess maybe people in Wisconsin or Oregon wouldn't care or know who the Jersey Devil is. But they this company had uh had made a uh, a, a series of killer scarecrow movies that were not a, not uh you know, sequels to each other. Or the only thing in common with these films that they were producing were, was that there was a killer scarecrow. So they them. created a scarecrow genre. Genre, right. right. So um, so they asked, so they said they were taking pitches on, I believe that at that point it was their third. Um, they were taking pitches for ideas about killer scarecrows. So I actually, back then, when there was actually a thing called Blockbuster that you could go to, I went to rent one of these scarecrow movies to get an idea of what I was looking at, you know, what 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 they were like. And um, while I was in Blockbuster, I was looking for this title, you know, of one of the Scarecrow movies they had made. And I sort of hit me in a way that, you know, especially being a horror fan, I'm like, there's a lot of Scarecrow movies that there was another series called Dark Harvest. There was there, there was more Scarecrow, killer Scarecrow movies than I had thought, you know, were out there when I was looking for this one. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, well, there are a lot of killer Scarecrow movies, aren't there? And then when I turned around, with, I found the one that I was looking for. I'm staring at the other side of the horror genre shelf and I just see it, as we all know, probably the biggest subgenre in horror, millions of zombie movies. Mm-hmm. And the light bulb went off. I'm like, well, okay, we got lots of scarecrow movies. We got lots of zombie movies. I don't think anybody's ever put the two in one. Maybe that's the pitch. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how it all began. So I went home, I watched the one that they had made to get an idea of like what, you know, tone budget to hold it so I, I i came up with an idea of scarecrows battling zombies so scarecrows versus zombies now we're also uh, we're right. all really familiar with the zombie genre at this point right what are the tropes of the scarecrow genre so i honestly until now <laughs> i didn't know there was a scarecrow genre. I, I know both marvel and dc have a villain called the scarecrow that's as far as i get and and ray bolger was one that was that's so what what are what are what's kind of the formula? What are kind of the things you expect to see in a scarecrow movie? 
And then how well, do you uh, yeah. merge? Right. Well, well, the, well, right. Well, the one that I had watched, I believe it was a, if I recall, it was going back a, a while. I think it was the reincarnated, uh, the per, like demon spirit went into this, you know, scarecrow and whatever, whatever. But, um, you know, for this particular one that I had seen and, but, 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 but show you, uh, you know, I had, so I came up with, I gave my little pitch and I wrote a first draft of uh, Scarecrows versus Zombies. And what, and the one that they wound up going with, they obviously, obviously didn't go with this one. They went, they, they went with something called, I think, believe Scarecrow's Gone Wild about a killer scarecrow attacking Topless teenagers scarecrows. on spring break. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so, th so that. You can see all the hay in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's what it was. So, so anyway, so for the, like, the past 16, 17 years, I've had a first draft version of Scarecrows versus Zombies because of the long-winded story I just explained. Um, so when I was pitching to anybody, you know, with my horror scripts, I'd always, you know, throw it in there. And, uh, you know, a couple of times, you know, I had actually gotten one option on it a few years back, obviously never happened. So fast forward to, you know, maybe about six months ago or so, uh, the, you know, Bob Wasson, the, the, the team, the, the team at VFX that made Underneath the Same Moon, um, you know, he reached out and he said that, you know, they had gotten some financing together. They wanted to knock out a, a low budget horror movie. Um, and there, it was going to happen very quickly. Uh, they were going to start shooting, you know, within the next, within a month or so and try to get this ready to come out for this Halloween, you know, which was. So they needed a, something that was already written. Well, they actually, uh, they actually had a few ideas that, uh, that he said, you know, he goes, I don't know how much time and availability you have in terms of writing a script, but these are some ideas that we have in mind. So I, looked at the ideas and I said, you know, I, I did, I didn't know if I would be able to knock out a script in a week. Um, but I went back to him and I said, well, you know, I said, I have a few horror scripts that I've written, you know, um, you know, some of them are first draft, but you know, you'll, you'll get the idea. So I sent them my log lines and lo and behold, he came back and said, you know, the scarecrows versus zombies idea kind of looks like clickbait for horror. I mean, they're just, just the idea I'd, I'd watch it based on the title. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are a lot of horror people out there that would too. Um, you know, send it over. So uh, sent over the first draft that blew the dust off for 16 years worth and sent it over and he, he loved it. You know, he, you know, he had a bunch of ideas and different things he wanted, but, uh, and there we go. So it happened very fast and quickly and they shot it this summer, you know, using all the COVID uh, in California, used, you know, the shooting in the time of COVID and all the things they needed to do yeah. to get it done. Right. And, and, uh, and I'm guessing like underneath the same moon, you were not on set for that, but that's been in, ongoing discussions how do you shoot these how do you shoot things during covid not just the crew but how do you keep two people in the same shot i mean i'm guessing the scarecrow and the zombie masks might have helped <laughs> yeah i mean i you know i'm seeing some like you know some neat things that they're that i think they're doing with you know cgi and stuff like that so mm -hmm. uh you know uh yeah i mean definitely a challenge that's for sure but um but you know to their to his credit he he was able to get it done and, and, and you know they're heavy in post and doing everything they can to get this uh get this available on uh, amazon prime you know so this is also halloween yeah this is also going to amazon prime now how much have you seen or are you still waiting to see it um i've seen uh i i've seen a lot of you know behind the scenes footage mm -hmm. uh you know you know once you know once you find out who the actors are in it you kind of start stalking their Instagram pages and things <laughs> like that. You know, so they're all, they're all doing that. Um, I actually saw a scene uh, very early on that was assembled um, that sort of sets up the main, uh, the villain in the film that uh, is very effective. Um, 
so you know I, I'm liking what I'm seeing. I you know I, I, I I'm I'm very uh, very anticipatory about how it's going to turn out. Yeah. Now, how does this experience measure to the end of the same moon? As you said, you're watching dialogue on the phone, and it was just a real <laughs> moment. How is it to see a horror script from what you've seen? It does that bring it to another level, or do you feel like okay, I know what my movies are going to look like. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's always, you know, obviously, you know, it's like the first time of anything is always, you're never going to have that same experience, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the fact that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't my genre, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's still, it still was thrilling to, to, you know, to see, to see it happen, you know, the first time. I mean, it's obviously it would be a thrill every time, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, but but this one this one is sort of you know kind of you know a sweet spot because it's you know I I, I you know I my, you know I, I didn't I didn't want to leave the planet without having a horror film that I wrote produced you know what I mean so right. as as thrilled as I was that underneath the same moon happened and got made and you know and 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 you know it was, came out to you know to a, to a fairly nice response I was uh, I, you know I still wouldn't have been happy if you know if a if one of my horror scripts didn't didn't make it you know so. Um, so that's that's the added pleasure to to this scenario this time around. So we're yeah. looking at a dream come true, is what we're looking at. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And now I was going to ask, what would your dream project be? But is this it, or um, is it? Uh, well, is it well, you know, it's fantasy uh, script done, uh, well, or is it? Yeah. Well, you know, it, uh, in interestingly, uh, I my dream project, I am my favorite story of all time, and you know, I mean, quasi horror. I mean, if you think about it depending on what version you see. My favorite script, my favorite story of all time that I'm just obsessed with is, is, uh, is A Christmas Carol. I am just obsessed with that story. I always have been. Um, I love that story. I love, I think I've seen every, just about every version that's ever been made. Um, the Alistair Sim version being the, 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 the you know, the, the creme de la creme, which that version is really a horror movie. I mean, if you watch that version, I mean, it yeah. really is. So uh, my, you know, my dream project, if you will, is uh, I wrote a script back. This is right before the Jim Carrey sort of animated CGI one had come out. So I was, I literally had just finished it. And I, I heard they were making that. I was like, oh, great. You know what I mean? The timing couldn't have been worse. <laughs> but enough years have come and gone since then. And that wasn't all that well received. But I, you know, it's sort of the, the, the script, the version that I've written uh, is sort of the wicked version of A Christmas Carol. It's told from a slightly different point of view is it a scarecrow's view it's not a scarecrow's view I, um, we really need the christmas scarecrow yeah. genre but but it, it's told in a, it's the story you know and love but it's slightly told from a point of view that gives a perspective on the story that you haven't that that you know that maybe charles dickens would be furious with me for doing it but but i but it's told from a slightly different perspective so that the end at the end you're seeing something and seeing it in a way that you would never have seen it the way that it was written. Not that I'm in, insinuating at all that it, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol needs any type of uh, <laughs> anything to make it better than it's, than it's been for the last, you know, how many years. It's just that if you're going, it's been, I just feel that that story has been told so many times. If you can put a little bit of a spin on it to make it seem a little different and fresh, you know, and told in the, you know, and, and it was written in a, in a, in a way that, you know, almost like a Harry Potter film in terms of the fantasy element, like it would be this gigantic film, you know, from a visual effects standpoint and, and things like that. So that's my dream project. I would love to, um, and, you know, and the only, the only person that could play the role would be Anthony Hopkins. I would insist on it. <laughs> I wouldn't sell the script without it. 
you know, because I feel um, like Alistair Sim, he has the very unique ability, like very few actors do, without makeup to have a, I mean, you know, the Alistair Sim version, which I'm, I'm assuming you've seen. I've, yeah, I've, uh, no, I've, I've seen right. it. I've, um, right. I mean, the, 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 amazing, the amazing part of the, the, a lot of things about that movie that are amazing, but the, the thing is like, he is, you know, supposedly he was this wonderful man in real life, Alistair Sim, and he's playing like one of the most horrible, nasty- He's know, Mr. Burns in it. Like, yeah, exactly. He's all shriveled but, and decrepit. But when you, those scenes in the beginning where he's this, you know, the, the nasty, you know, horrible Scrooge that we all know, I mean, his face is devoid of any type of inner light, of any type of kindness. And at the end of that movie, when he has you know, the, the redemption and the revelation of, you know, of how his life has been mislived, um, like that face that we see at the end, just through his acting, is, is unbelievable. Like you're looking at somebody else, like his, his, the warmth that comes out of it. Like it's amazing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, just, it's, it's just amazing. You know, and it, that he, yeah, that he's able to have the acting skills to do that uh, effectively was quite something. And I think, and Anthony, and if you think of Anthony Hopkins, you know, he also has the ability. I mean, he can be Hannibal Lecter, and right. he can be this warm, cuddly person just by acting. You know what I mean? And so he's transitioned I, I, really well into his senior roles. Exactly. Like things like Odin and Thor. Um, you know, he's he's knows he's not the man he was in the in the eighties. Um, but sort of something like Scrooge, I think it's, it's a good fit. Now, yeah. So, so that, that would be my dream project, but, uh, I have a bunch of other, you know, smaller, uh, <laughs> smaller, um, you know, scripts that, you know, I would love to see the light of day. There, there's, a, there's another horror script that I also had a few options on that was one that I would love to see. It's, uh, you know, it harkens back. One of my favorite horror movies from the eighties that is kind of an obscure little movie. It's called Lady in White. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No. Um, it's a really, uh, it's a really effective and, and well done ghost story um, that takes place in the early sixties. It has a To Kill a Mockingbird flavor to it. Hmm. Um, and it's very, very well done. Um, and the, the script I, I wrote called The Leap, The Leapling, uh, which uh, some, for those who don't know, Leapling is somebody who's born on February 29th. So you'd have a birthday every four years. And it's about, a, it's a ghost story that takes place uh, where a, a, a boy, a 10 year old boy is killed, uh, murdered on Leap Day. And his ghost returns to the scene of the crime every four years on, mm. on Leap Day. And so they call it, it, so it has this whole sort of urban myth about it called the Leapling murders. Um, and and that's that's one that I would I would love to to, to see happen because it, it it has a lot of uh, heart to it besides you know besides some scares besides a lot of scares so <clears throat> yeah so Tom we always wrap up the podcast with what we call greatest thing in the world this week uh, where we just talk about what what's something you're obsessed with what's something you're really into what's something you've discovered or rediscovered what's getting you through the pandemic what are you into right now. Um, well, what I'm into right now is my, uh, my daughter, I have a son and a daughter, my daughter and I are, are, you know, I, I say the world is broken up into two types of people, Halloween people and non-Halloween people. There are people who don't get Halloween. Like they don't understand why an adult could care less about Halloween. And I'm obsessed with Halloween and my daughter got my gene and we love it. So, um, what I'm trying to do, and we have all of these traditions and different things that we do in the area that, uh, you know, 
hay rides and this and that. So I'm 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 trying to figure out what's op- we're going to be open this year, what we're actually going to be allowed to do, so that I I can feel like the Halloween season doesn't come and go without me having my you know being able to celebrate it in some type of way. I, that's you know obviously with everything going on in the world, that's you know a bit shallow maybe, but, but I'm saying no. at the moment that's uh, that's you know that's where I am. I just love the whole fall season, especially, you know, where I live, you know, with this change of the seasons and everything like that. And yeah. of course, you know, and of course, you know, the, you know, the bigger concern obviously is I just, you know, I, I just, I, I like everybody else, you know, looking forward to the day that, you know, whatever normal is, we go back to it to, to a degree and, you know, there's some type of vaccine and, you know, we, people stop getting sick and people stop dying and, you know, we can, we can start to, you know, connecting with each other in a much more personal way that, than we're able to do now. <clears throat> yeah. That's a good, good way to wrap mm. up. Uh, now, Tom, you and I connected over Facebook, but how can people follow you and how can people watch your movies? As we said, Amazon prime is one place. Right. Amazon prime. Uh, well, scarecrows, uh, uh, if you want underneath the same moon has a, a Facebook page, it has a, um, Instagram page. Um, it has a, a website underneath the same moon.com. Um, Scarecrows versus Zombies uh, also has its own Facebook page, so you can follow along. Uh, you can also register. It has a, uh, a website, scarecrowsversuszombies.com. You can register on that website for updates. Um, that you can click on uh, a get notified button on there, and you'll get notified on all the updates uh, that are coming through on that. Um, and uh, the, the the company that made both of the films is called the vfxlab.com also has a, a a website and a and a facebook page as well you can also follow me at not in my book on twitter and instagram that is the official caffeinated comics social networking feed you can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash caffeinated comics. That's where we post all the news and links to things that are going on, everything in the world of geek. And you can listen to the show. If you're not already subscribed, go to iTunes, go to Spotify, go to Stitcher, and now go to Amazon Music. There's so many ways to listen to us. Or you can go right to the source if you're on a browser because some people do that at work. Uh, You can go to radiomisfits.com, click on the Lifestyle tab, and you'll see the archive of shows we've done uh, for the last two years. Before that, we've been doing this show for eight years. You can go to caffeinatedcomics.blogspot.com and that has a full archive of everything we've done since 2013. See, there's stuff you can listen to. We'll talk to you next week.